We are in a series called It's Good. The Gospel is Good. And you may already know that, but we live in a world where people may have not heard that or may have decided the opposite. It's not good. Being a follower of Jesus leads to a lot of negative things. Sometimes uh, people will have questions about Christianity or about Jesus, church-going folks, or the whole thing that will be kind of uh, barriers, obstacles for them to come closer to Jesus. And part of what we want to do this summer is to equip us as followers of Jesus to answer some of those questions, to respond to some of those concerns and questions that often come up about like criticisms for Christianity. And we don't just want to equip ourselves with some helpful answers or some helpful responses. We want to do it in a loving way. I believe that that tone of how we respond is even more important than the content. The content's important too, but if it's not done with love, with gentleness, with respect, like the scriptures tell us, it's a missed opportunity or the message does not get heard. So we have two goals each Sunday for this sermon series. The first one, well, the one that I just mentioned is to equip, to give us some helpful information that can prepare us to respond to criticisms that people will often have of Christianity. The second thing is to encourage. Each week we're going to listen to one of, a segment from one of Paul's letters to the not the Corinthian church, the Thessalonian church from First and Second Thessalonians. We're going to do a devotional reading where we're just going to listen to how his words were encouraging this group of Christians who were a minority in the area in which they lived. And Paul said, you're getting it right. You're doing great. Just keep persevering in your faith. We're going to listen to those words and think about how they can be an encouragement for us today. And as I mentioned we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is what we're going to listen to today. And you're going to hear a couple of things. Before I read it, before we listen to it together, uh, I want you to notice some things that you're going to be hearing from Paul. One, he's going to use some parental language, which is why it's appropriate that this is our, our text on Father's Day. He's going to talk about how Paul and Timothy and Silas, when they were there building the church, training people in the faith in Jesus Christ. He says he's gonna, that we comforted you and consoled you the way that a father soothes his children. He uses maternal language as well. He says, we cared for you. We were involved in your lives and we loved you the way that a mother loves her child. So I want you to listen for that parental care language. Another theme that you're going to hear, and Paul hits on this several times, you're going to hear this more than once, is that we told you the gospel because it's faithful to the gospel. We weren't trying to win any popularity contests. We didn't water it down. We didn't change the message, but we shot you straight. We told you the gospel because we're trying to please God and we're not trying to please men. So you're like, you're going to hear that several times in just this one chapter. And so now I want to invite you to just listen. You can read along on the screen, but hear the words of Paul as an encouragement to a group of Christians and what that can mean for us. Paul writes this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Brothers and sisters, you yourselves know that our coming to you was not a waste of time. You remember how we had just suffered through brutal and insulting attacks in Philippi, but because of God, we boldly stepped into the open to tell you his good news, even though it would likely mean more conflict for us. For we haven't approached you, or anyone else for that matter, with some error or impure motive or deceitful agenda. But as we have been approved by God and entrusted with the good news, that's how we are telling the world. We aren't trying to please everybody but God, the only one who can truly examine our motives. 
As you know, we didn't sandwich the truth between cunning compliments. We told it straight. And before the eye of God, we never conspired to make a single cent off of you. We didn't come seeking respect from people, not from you or anyone else. Although we could have leveraged our position as emissaries of the anointed one, that is Jesus, the liberating king. Instead, we proved to be gentle among you, like a nursing mother caring for her own children. We were so taken by you that we not only eagerly shared with you God's good news, but we also shared with you our own lives. That's how much you've come to mean to us. Don't you remember, my brothers and sisters, how hard we worked and struggled? We worked day and night so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you, so that we could continue to pray, proclaim to you the good news of God. Both you and God can confirm how well we treated the believers. We were always holy, just, and blameless. As you know, we comforted and consoled each of you as a father soothes his own children, encouraging you to live lives worthy of God, of the one calling you into his own kingdom and into his glory. And so we have good reason to give thanks to God without pausing, for you have taken into yourselves the word of God we brought to you and received it as a message from God, not just something whipped up by someone like you or us, and that word is at work in you who believe. And brothers and sisters, you even became imitators of the churches of God in Jesus the Anointed that gather in Judea because you were willing to suffer at the hands of your own countrymen as they suffered from the unbelieving Judeans. These are the same people who killed the Lord Jesus as well as the prophets and continued attacking until they drove all of us out. They don't just offend God. They are clearly hostile to the, people, to the rest of the people because they are trying to silence our life-saving message to the nations. And as a result, their sins are always filling up and overflowing. But in the end, they will face God's wrath. Brothers and sisters, we are like orphans separated from you for a short time. In presence, yes, but not in heart. And we desperately desire to see your faces again. However, as much as we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, assure you, we tried again and again. Satan thwarted our plans. For what is our true hope, our true joy, our victor's crown in all of this? It is nothing if it isn't you standing before the Lord Jesus, the anointed, at his arrival. You are our glory. You are our joy. And that's the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. A lot of those themes that I mentioned, you picked up on them, right? You can tell that they, it, it, it's strange because they only spent a short time with this church. He's writing to them like they are lifelong friends. And maybe you've had a situation where you were with somebody for only a short time, but you bonded. Not if somebody comes to mind as I mentioned that. It wasn't quantity of time that you spent together, but it was really quality time. Some of those relationships you can pick up with right where you left off, even if you haven't seen or spoken with them in years. That's the situation here. Paul really paints this picture of love and care and a real relationship that they formed with the church. And you also notice he says this, we boldly stepped out into the open to tell you his good news, even though it would likely mean conflict for us. This reminds me of the time that I've, uh, the times that I've been fortunate enough to play a game called paintball. Give me a little hand raise if you've ever played paintball before. Okay, Wes Wolford and no one else. <laughs> okay, a couple more hands. John, you played paintball? 
If you're not familiar with the sport of paintball, you have an air-compressed gun that shoots little balls of paint, little paint pellets. And you know, that may sound like something you don't want to get hit with. And that's exactly the point. You have two teams, and you like run out, and you try to shoot each other. It's an elimination game. So it's, I mean, and it hurts. If you get hit by a paintball, like, it'll break open. It'll leave a bruise on your skin. So you want to not get hit. That's the goal. And so the times that I've played paintball, I forget that I'm kind of like a big, big target. Like, I'd be easy to hit. If I was playing with some smaller people, they can crouch and all this stuff. A lot of people, when they play paintball, they'll, they'll find a place to just sort of hide. And they'll duck down behind, like, a barrier or a bunker. There's even, like, structures you can go inside. You're sort of like, wait. And go, they say, one, two, three, go. And I go, ah, out in the open, choo, 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 choo. I get shot right away. And so I'm out. My paintball rounds are always very short. But other people have figured out that it's a good strategy if you want to last a long time in the paintball game to just kind of hide out, to hunker in the bunker, to not stick your head up because you might get shot. It's safe when you crouch. It's safe when you hide. That's a good strategy when it comes to the sport of paintball. But what Paul is saying here is maybe that's a good strategy when it comes to being a Christian in a region where Christianity is not celebrated. And he's saying, we could have done that. Some people will choose to do that, to not go public with their faith, but just to hide and kind of keep it to themselves and keep a low profile. And he said, in starting this church, in teaching you the gospel, we stepped out in the open. We made ourselves a target. But it was worthwhile because we need to be faithful to the gospel. It can be tempting for Christians today to keep their beliefs under wraps, especially if being a Christian means attaching yourself to some pretty unpopular, in fact, scandalous beliefs about who you say Jesus is. If you say, I am a follower of Jesus, you are admitting to the world, one, that God exists, and you believe that he came to earth in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. You may have lost some people at that point, but that's just the start. And then you say Jesus was crucified to death and that he was buried in a tomb, but on the third day, he was resurrected from the dead. And we believe that he ascended into heaven. And this is not just hard for people to believe today. This was hard news for people to accept, even in the ancient world. Sometimes we have this idea that the ancient people were just kind of bumpkins and like, I don't believe anything. We don't have computers. What do we do? That's not the case. People knew what it meant for someone to die, and they knew how to check if someone was dead or not. So to say that someone was dead, legit, confirmed, but was raised by the power of God and was like seen by all these people, first reaction is going to be, but that's not something that happens. Even we know that. So that is an obstacle for people. But if you can get past those things and say, all right, we're, we're, what, what happened next? The one that trips up modern believers, I think even more so, the belief the doctrine, doctrinal point about Jesus is the exclusive claims of Jesus. Jesus saying things like John 14, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a pretty bold claim, and that's a pretty exclusive claim. In the story of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus says to Mary and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever believes or whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Some do. Some don't. 
That's a very bold and exclusive claim. And in Matthew chapter 28, you may be familiar with the Great Commission. It's printed on our wall. Permanent marker over there. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and, what does it say? Make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son. Who's the Son? Jesus. He's talking about himself. Baptizing in the name of God the Father. Yeah, we know that one. But also me. Okay. And the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We Christians will sometimes balk at the command, the commission to go and make disciples. Like, ooh, how do I do that? We got to baptize. Oh, I've never done that before. The thing that the ancient people probably would have had a problem with is the part that we forgot to put on the wall. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What? What if I said that to you? Hey guys, over the weekend, all authority in heaven and the whole earth has been given to me. What would you say? Probably not. It probably hasn't. I believe you're mistaken. That's king language. That's the kind of thing that a, a ruler says. That's the kind of thing that God says. Jesus is making bold claims, but also exclusive claims. I am not a way. I am the way. These exclusive claims that Jesus makes about himself become deal breakers for many non-believers. So one criticism that we as followers of Christ must face and respond to, again, gently and lovingly, and I'm going to say it one more time because it's that important. We must respond to these criticisms gently and lovingly. The question is, how can you say there is only one faith? This is a big question that comes up. Sometimes our answer is just like, because there is, deal with it. Hmm. Maybe that's satisfying for some, but not for all. The heart, one of the, one of the things behind this question that we need to be aware of is, and the reason people don't like this, is because it sounds arrogant. It sounds ethnocentric to say, my way is the way, therefore your way is off. It's deficient in some way. And especially when you consider Christianity's history of having power and abusing power and not just offering Jesus to people, but forcing Jesus on people, modern day folks are like, uh, I don't know, just the I am the way part. I can't get past that. Our culture has also become very fond of saying there's not one truth. Truth is kind of uh, up for interpretation. There's my truth. There are your truths as you choose to define them. There's, there's, there's other people's truths. There can be lots of truths, and they're all just fine. A modern-day philosophy that you'll hear, ironic though it may be, is allowing for many different paths is the only acceptable path. Think about that one for a minute. It doesn't really work out. The only acceptable path is allowing for many different paths. Before I was in ministry full-time, I uh, was talking with a co-worker of mine when I lived in New Jersey. And she was Muslim. And we were talking about faith and, and beliefs and things. And she made this statement that stuck with me. She said, the whole point of religion is just to make you a better person. So whichever one you pick is fine. They're all about the same. And it was one of those situations where I was like, man, I have so much to say in response to that. But the moment kind of came and went. I didn't really respond at all. But the, the statement stuck with me. 
And it came from a good place. She's like, you know, I, I raised my kids in the faith, the Muslim faith, because I want them to be faithful adults. I want them to be good kids. I want a good outcome. I want our neighborhoods to be peaceful. And I think that that's a good goal that people have. But it's problematic to say that all religions are the same. She was basically saying, all roads lead to Rome. They're all just different parts of the same elephant. Believe what you want, as long as it helps us get along in society, and just let's not talk about it anymore. On the surface, this sounds like a good strategy, and a lot of people will adopt that as their worldview. But a closer look reveals that it doesn't actually work. Saying that all religions are pretty much the same, that they have the same purpose and the same goal, is not only not true, but it's actually kind of dismissive of people's core beliefs. If somebody says all religions, more religions are about the same, just pick one, it shows that they either, one, don't really understand what the beliefs and claims of the religions are, and two, don't realize that it's being dismissive toward things that people actually center their lives around. The fact is, all religions in one way or another make a truth claim. And to say that all religions are basically the same shows a lack of understanding of what these truth claims are. I am not an expert in world religions, and you might not be either, but a cursory glance at some of the beliefs and practices of world religions will tell you, will kind of confirm this. One, think about the three main, major monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They all claim that there is one God, and that other so-called gods are idols. So if they are right, if that's a truth claim that is correct, then that automatically says polytheistic religions are wrong. So they kind of defeat each other. You can't have them being on equal footing. There are also historical claims that each of those three religions make about Jesus. Christians believe that Jesus was crucified, died, was buried, but that he was raised by the Holy Spirit. Muslims on the other hand, believe that Jesus was a prophet, good teacher, someone worth listening to. Uh, he didn't die, but that he was taken up into heaven by God, kind of like uh, Elijah, the prophet. Okay, so that's different. We're making a historical claim about what happened to Jesus after he died. This is one, and this is another, and it can't be both. And Jewish people, and atheists, and agnostics, for that matter, they say, yes, Jesus died. The historical record's pretty clear that there was this guy in Nazareth, in Galilee, and he claimed to be the son of God, and he was crucified during Passover. But, like everybody else who is crucified and executed, he remained dead. He was not resurrected. It can't be both. It's one or it's another. These claims are mutually exclusive of one another. And non-Christian religions, too, disagree on the nature of God. Islam and Buddhism, for example. Uh, Islamic faith believes that there is a personal God who is the creator of the world and that we're responsible to believe in him and merit our salvation and the afterlife. There's heaven and there's hell. Buddhists, on the, other believe, on the other hand, believe there is no personal God. They believe the world is eternal, that man has no soul distinct from the body. There is no heaven and hell and that sin is merely an illusion. I'm kind of holding these up against each other to make the point. It cannot be both. One people say this is how it is. Another belief system says this is how it is. They are making claims about the way the world works and a way our existence just is. These are truth claims. And I'm kind of going through this kind of long list. And you may be wondering, like, why is this like a world religions seminar now all of a sudden? Isn't this supposed to be a gospel 
sermon. The point is, all world religions make some truth claim about how the world works, about what we understand God to be. All religions make claims that are exclusive. Even unbelievers, atheists, and agnostics make exclusive truth claims. If someone says that no one should make an exclusive truth claim, that itself is an exclusive truth claim. So, I want to bend your brains too far. But other religions as well are saying this is true and therefore that is not true. So if someone is criticizing Christianity for saying like, you can't say this is true and that is not, everybody does that. The fact is, and this is something Christians need to own, Jesus did make some very specific truth claims about himself that the world needs to wrestle with and evaluate and decide on. Here's an example. In the Gospel of Mark, the question keeps coming up, especially in the first half of the story of the life of Jesus. And it's a question that's on people's lips at the end of Jesus doing something amazing. They ask the question, who is this man? They're kind of left dumbfounded. He'll heal or he'll teach and they'll be amazed. And they're like, he's, he's unlike anybody we've ever seen. There's something special about this guy, but what is it? Who is this man? There's a scene in Mark chapter 2 where uh, these people found out that Jesus is a healer, that he's healing people's diseases and sicknesses. So they bring their friend to him, and the friend can't walk. And they can't get to Jesus because he's in a house, and there's so many people surrounding the house. So nod your head if you know where this is going. You've heard this story. They cut a hole in the roof. I guess roofs were easier to cut back then. And they lower the friend down in front of Jesus. And he goes, oh, good effort there. And he looks at the man, and he doesn't say, I can heal you. That's what I do. What does he say instead? Your sins are forgiven. Whoa, that made people really upset. They're like, that's something God says. Only God has the authority to forgive sin. So who is this man that he thinks he can do that? And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, probably hearing their thoughts that have been vocalized, says, oh, is that a problem for you? It's not a problem for me. <laughs> are you surprised that I'm saying your sins are forgiven? Would it be easier for me to say, get up off your mat and walk? Something that you haven't been able to do? Well, let's do that just to show the power of God is here. Get up and walk, and the man was healed. Amazing. Sometimes we go, wow, what an amazing healing. But the people back then would have said, wow, what an amazing claim. This man is claiming to have the authority, the power of God. Who is this man? Because only God can forgive sins, and Jesus is there winking, going, I know. What is, you're right there. You're right there. You're starting to get it. What does that tell you? I am the son of God power of God at my disposal. Ugh, something exciting is happening here. You can't just say Jesus had some cool ideas like love your neighbor, follow him like a coffee mug statement. He's a wise teacher. People try to get away with that all the time. But when you realize what Jesus was actually saying, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. There's only three possibilities of how you can regard Jesus. He was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or if what he was saying was true, he is the Lord. Because that's who he was claiming. To be. If you claim to be the Lord and you know you're not, then you're a liar, then you're a scam artist, then you're hoodwinking the entire community, and we should not listen to a word you say. They should have crucified him, and the book should have been closed on his story. So he might be a liar. Some people think he was. Or he thought he was the Son of God, but he actually wasn't. There's probably a lot of people even today who think they are the Queen of England or uh, King of England, uh, making claims about themselves. They believe are true, but they're mistaken. Something is, is wrong about their thinking. In that case, Jesus would have been a lunatic. 
And a lot of people put their faith and trust in a lunatic. Or this possibility. He said he was the son of God. He showed that he was the son of God. People witnessed things that only the son of God could do. And then they wrote about it. And that's how we have an understanding of who he was. The third possibility is he actually was the son of God. He wasn't a liar. He wasn't a lunatic. He was, in fact, the Lord of all. A lot of people who don't start out as Christians but become Christians after they examine the evidence or like someone says, you know, just think about it. Read the scriptures and, and, and ask the right questions. One of the main things that kind of turns them toward belief in Jesus is this, this thing, just considering the historical evidence and saying, wow, okay, the resurrection seems to have happened. Like, here's an explanation for why it wouldn't have, but they don't really make sense. Given the details that we have, given an understanding of how the ancient world worked, a lot of people start with the resurrection and go, you know what? I don't think it was fake. I don't think it was a lie. I don't think a bunch of people were just mistaken. I think it actually happened. So what does that mean? If Jesus is Lord and their faith kind of grows from there, if he's Lord and if what he said about himself was true, then maybe what he said about God is true. Maybe what he said about being the way and the truth and the life, maybe that is true. And maybe that's going to cause me to examine some things about my life that I might need to change. Anyway, what was our original question? How can you say there is only one, one true faith, one way of seeing the world? And another thing to think about, it's not accurate to just lump Christianity in with all of the different beliefs and philosophies and worldviews, because there's some unique things. Besides just Jesus' claims about himself, there's some unique ways that Christianity works. For example, the goal of most world religions, not all, but a lot of them, the goal is to give you tools and tips on how to get to God. The goal is, you know, after you die or being connected with God in this life, the goal is to tell you how to get to God or some higher form of consciousness. Christianity is the only religion that tells you the story of how God came to you. How he loved you so much that he came to earth, showed you, taught you, sacrificed his son, like Ryan was reminding us this morning. Other worldviews tend to be good advice about what should happen, but Christianity is good news. It's not advice about what should come in the future. It's news about something that happened in the past, a historical event, an amazing demonstration of God's power, the resurrection of his son, and what that means for us. It's not good advice. Christianity and the gospel is good news. It's news about a relentless God who loves you so much that he would pursue you to the ends of the earth, put his own heart on the line. So back to the question, is Christianity exclusive? It seems like Jesus is making some pretty exclusive claims. Is it an exclusive way to God? The answer that we have to admit is yes. Yes, it is. Christianity is radically exclusive. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And he describes Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Many people will take it, but narrow is the path that leads to life, and few will find it. It is radically exclusive. But, and don't forget the but, that's not, that's not where it ends. It is also radically inclusive. Christianity is radically inclusive. It is open to any, everyone and anyone, regardless of your color, your ethnicity, your gender, your past sins, your current state of whatever you believed or did in the past. It is a wide open door. Jesus stands there and says, come to me, all of you. 
I love the passage in Matthew chapter 11. It's just, when you're having a hard week or a hard day, man, just hold on to this one. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me. My, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Nod your head if you've had a kind of week where you could use that, that offer from Jesus. But my favorite part is the beginning. Come to me, some of you. No. Come to me. Those of you who got your act together, when you're ready, I'll be waiting. Nope, that's not what he says. He says, come to me. All of you. All of you. Not just Christians. Not just Californians. Everybody. And we talked about this on week one. Christianity appeals to everyone. Globally. Worldwide. It is inclusive. It's exclusive. Because Jesus says, this is the way. But it's open to all. There's this statue in uh, Brazil. I think it's Brazil. I should have double-checked. It's called Christ the Redeemer. See, nod your head if you've seen this statue before. It's 150 feet tall. It stands at the top of this cool, crooked mountain, and like thousands of tourists go there to see it, get their picture taken in front of it. And Jesus stands there with his arms open wide. The statue's arms are 92 feet from fingertip to fingertip. That's a big open-arm statue of Jesus. I like this statue for a couple reasons. One, it reminds us of the cross. Jesus is in the, I'm going to sacrifice for you posture. But it's also like what we're talking about. It's Jesus' invitation for all. This is the way, but everyone is welcome. He opens his arms wide. I think this is a good image for us as the church to hold on to. The question that Jesus and this statue have for us this morning Questions are, will we deny ourselves? Will we follow Jesus' example to pick up our cross daily and follow him? Will we be, sac will be willing to sacrifice like Paul and Timothy and, and Silas? Are we willing to go from here, hunkering in the bunker, put ourselves out there? Maybe it means taking a hit. Maybe it means an uncomfortable conversation. Maybe it means admitting to a truth that's not very popular in our society. But are we willing to follow Jesus' sacrificial posture? Will we go public with what we believe about Jesus? Will we have the open arms embrace anyone who's willing to hear? There's a lot of division. There's a lot of people that like, if you're honest, you don't want to have anything to do with those people. Because they don't believe what I believe. Because they're not followers of Jesus. Because they're not getting it right and they won't even listen to the conversation. Jesus' posture is come to me. All of you. I grew up in church. It was like not a very, maybe a sliver of time where I, I wasn't a follower of Jesus or wasn't going to church and like did, wasn't sure what I believed. Like most of my life, that had, that's been my experience. But it's exciting when you hear the testimony of someone who comes to Christ in their adult years or later on in life even because they have this, this history. Maybe they were part of that group of people that you just can't stand, that you just can't relate to, that you want to distance yourself from. That's where they were. But because of the open arms of Jesus, because of the gospel, because examining the clues and saying, all right, let's, let's figure out if he's a liar, lunatic, or Lord, they came to Christ. That's how the lost get found. That is how new people come to Christ, is when we continue this posture and say, hey, we may not agree with all the stuff you read, but we know what we believe, and our arms are open, and our doors are open. That's the challenge, I think, for Christians and for churches. I'm going to invite the praise team to come back up here, and we're going to, in a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing what we believe about Jesus.
not, uh, the song is not called Jesus is Liar. It's not called Jesus is Lunatic. It's called Jesus is Lord. Wouldn't it be weird if it was one of those other ones? I'm going to let Rebecca McLaughlin have the last word. She's the author of this book where a lot of, uh, uh, she's our guide this summer in this series. Uh, she says this, Peter says to share the gospel with gentleness and respect, but respect is not shown by not sharing the gospel. She says gentleness and respect are not shown by not telling the truth. They're shown in how we tell the truth. So I pray that we tell it boldly and faithfully, but again, with gentleness and respect. Let's stand and confess our faith together.